0: This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.
1: People seem to be... What's called is nesting at a home right now, making it as comfortable and as cozy as possible. And so it's not just that mattress that people are uh, thinking about right now. It's everything in the bedroom from sheets, pillows, bed frames, and, and of course, the mattress and the adjustable bed.
2: Welcome to The Tonic. I'm your host, Jamie Busson and we're here to talk about your health and wellness. Today, we'll discuss shopping for mattresses and bedding online. We'll hear about spousal support during COVID-19. We'll cover the natural treatment of constipation and IBS. And lastly, we'll find out about cooking with spices. But first, a little bit of business.
0: Need better sleep? Brought to you by Ultramedics new nano gel mattresses. Nano gel is a trailblazing no pressure technology made from pure gel. Sleep Virtually floating on air with Ultramatic's gel Mattresses. Now available with antimicrobial protection against viruses and germs. Black Friday specials are on now. Get free sheets, free pillows, and $1,200 off the Supreme Adjustable Base. Learn more at ultramatic.ca. Elevate your sleep.
2: Adarsh Shah nurtured the rise of Ultramatic, the iconic Canadian brand of adjustable beds and maker of delightful wellness products. He received his bachelor's degree in engineering at Cornell University, graduating magna cum laude in 1999. After graduation, Adarsh joined the Monitor Group, a Cambridge-based strategy consulting company. He worked for them in Toronto, New York, and Mumbai on various corporate strategy, market entry, and merger and acquisition projects. He is a proud Torontonian, having lived here for over 30 years, albeit with a few adventurous years in New York and in between. He's the father of two mischievous girls and a caregiver to his happy, healthy, and wine-loving parents. Welcome back to the show, sir. How are you? I'm wonderful. Thank you for having me back. Always a pleasure to have you. You know, what I'm realizing is if if there's one thing that COVID has sort of helped with a trend, it is that a lot of people who normally enjoy the process of going to a brick-and-mortar store have been making purchases online just because of all the way the the zones, the red zone, the orange zone, what's open and what's closed. We've all Mm -hmm. been sort of trained that way. But to my mind, buying mattresses and bedding online is a real challenge. So in a situation where you need a new bedroom, a new mattress, should we be doing this online or should we be waiting until things change?
1: That's a great question. You know, great topic because we've seen this change in the way we've all been buying yeah and uh, we're we're questioning uh, everything that we buy whether it can be bought online now from from thing you know small items to cars in fact i don't know if you know this but the fastest growing retailer in the u.s right now is a ca- online car retailer called the carvana i did not know
2: that <laughs> that's shocking to me
1: so it's certainly in our industry in the mattress and sleep industry uh we've seen a number of online brands come yeah. uh and 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 really change the industry as well as amazon and wayfair and costco uh, really become uh, choices in, in this in this market
2: with respect to timing though is there any reason not to buy a mattress now like would you issue caution or, or is it Okay, to consider buying a mattress.
1: It's actually great time to look at not just your mattress, but your whole bedroom. And in what does that mean? That's your bed sheets, your pillow, your bed frame, your mattress, and you know, an, an adjustable bed. We're spending more time at home, like you said, because of COVID. I think, you know, as we start to enter the winter, but uh, winter's almost here. So people are nesting at home right now, mm-hmm. trying to make it as yeah. comfortable and cozy as possible. And I think that's a great idea.
2: Adarsh, you know, interestingly enough, you know, my wife and I are actually redoing our bedroom. So is this a good time to buy mattress and bedding or should we wait?
1: You know, it's so interesting. This has been coming up uh, more and more as people have been at home now because of COVID. You know, they're avoiding crowded spaces, traveling less, spending more time at home. So people seem to be what's called as nesting at a home right now, making it as comfortable and as cozy as possible. And so it's it's not just that mattress that people are uh, thinking about now. right now. It's everything in the bedroom from sheets, pillows, bed frames, and, and, and of course, uh, the, the mattress and the adjustable bed.
2: That makes a lot of sense. But, you know, is, is this You know, we've heard about Black Friday. Should we all be sort of waiting for notification that the prices are slashed? Like, what's your advice?
1: It's going to happen. And this is a great time to take advantage of of a great deal. People are, retailers are ready to ramp up sales right now with Black Friday. As we get closer to the end of the year, you may not get the selection that you want, As retailers are trying to clear up the inventory right now to make room for next year's models.
2: Okay. So is that when the turnover is at the end of the year? It's actually year end? That's when the new stuff comes in?
1: Exactly. That's when the new stuff comes in. Be prepared for higher prices next year with the new stuff. Disrupted supply chains and raw material prices have really gone up. So next year is going to be more expensive. Right now is great because, you know, if nothing else, you'll be supporting your neighborhood shop. Most importantly, it's always a good time to listen to your body. So if it's speaking to you right now, then listen to it. If you're tossing and turning or waking up in the middle of the night, having difficulty breathing at night, it's time to look at how you sleep. So speak to a sleep expert and get some personalized advice.
2: You know, I'm old school. I'm not comfortable buying things online because I feel like, you know, certainly something like a mattress you want to sort of experience. But, you know, what's your perspective? Like you mentioned Amazon. Does it make sense to buy a sleep product from Amazon?
1: Yeah. Amazon is incredible. Uh, you know, we've been using it personally ourselves every week. And my wife seems to be getting a new package at her doorstep yeah. every day. Yeah, But there are I think these online stores have been great. They've allowed us to shop safely and easily. But I think they're good for certain products only. I think they're good for brands that you know, things that you buy on a a regular basis, perhaps, you know, cleaning materials, uh, a toothbrush, perhaps. Um, And they're also great for items that have standardized specifications that you can easily compare across, you know, different retailers or even across products, you know, like a computer or if you're you know looking for a new television, there's a speaker, humidifier, a book, I think they're good for items that have standardized specifications. But they're but Amazon, Wayfair, all these online sites, they're not so great for items that you may need to try, yeah. test. Now a pillow, you got to put your head down on a pillow or a mattress. You need to see how your body's going to react to these products.
2: Exactly. Would I buy clothing online? I would buy if I had a pair of pants and I wanted to replace that pair of pants, and I knew I was getting the exact same pair of pants. I don't need to go to the store for that and try it on. But if I'm buying something new, yeah, absolutely, that's personal. I struggle with buying it online. I guess, I guess it's a question of the retail experience, right? Which is more than just the purchase. It's the return policy. It's it's the timing. There's there's a lot that goes into it. Yeah.
1: Yes, and uh, you know, Amazon. I don't know if you you've noticed this when you search for a product. The most highly promoted items that appear on the top of your search results, a lot of them are from China. Yes. So that there is a little bit of curation, which happens on Amazon behind the scenes, that we may not be aware of. Be prepared for quality issues when you have uh, things coming from overseas. Be prepared for potential harmful chemicals like VOCs to be in those products, because they have different um, environmental standards uh, overseas. Right. And it's not just environmental standards but also fire retardancy and electrical standards vary from country to country. Canada fortunately has you know terrific standards for these these uh, consumer safety. Um, standards. So when you buy from Amazon, you don't necessarily get things which conform to all the legal standards.
2: But let's talk about brands for a second, because I think when you're talking about a, something like a mattress, I think everybody has in mind, you know, there's brands that they want to deal with because I don't know whether that's a function of advertising or actual quality. But, but what are your thoughts on some of the newer brands and older brands that people are probably seeing right now?
1: Yeah, probably all heard of the all the old brands. Uh, In the industry, we call them the S brands. Sealy, they all begin with the letter S. S, Stearns and Foster, Serta, and Simmons Beautyrest. These are the industries, uh, these are the brands that really made up 90% of the business, 90% of the mattress business for most of this century. But that's changing. These brands, they made great mattresses in the past, but they haven't kept up with the latest sleep technologies. And, you know, a lot of them still use springs in their mattresses, and that's really a hundred year old technology. Year after year, what they simply do is they repackage the same mattress construction on the inside in a new fashionable designer fabric. So you're not really getting a very, you know, an improved product year on year. The other thing I'll mention is that they're often reliant on large chains and department stores to promote their product. And, and so you're not necessarily getting the best quality on the inside, but they're often just selling based on the name. They, they have to focus on the, on, the, on manufacturing at the lowest cost possible for these powerful retailers. So they're trying to cater to uh, a mass market in the product. Sometimes it doesn't have the best quality on the inside.
2: I have a collateral question that, that arises out of what you just said. So, you know, there's big box retailers, right? And uh, we can imagine who they are. And sometimes you'll see brands that are there, but the actual product skew isn't exactly what you would find elsewhere. In other words, they're building special products just for the high volume at the big box store. Is that an issue with mattresses?
1: Yes. Yeah, it's the same product with a different name on it. You know, from one retailer to the next, and they do that so that you can't compare across retailers. But it's effectively the same product. What's really interesting is that there's a so you have new brands which have come on the market recently. Right. Yeah. And if you've taken the subway, you know, pre-COVID, you might have seen these names you know, on the subway or even just around town. They're actually using some of the latest technologies in sleep. They do sometimes go overboard with all their tech and, and snazzy terms. Yeah. But what they have done is they've reinvented how a mattress arrives at your doorstep.
2: Are you talking about the ones that
1: are rolled up in a box? That's right, exactly. They come up rolled and compressed in a carton. Right. When you open it up at home, it magically comes to shape.
2: What is the competitive advantage to them doing it? Is it cheaper to send out? Is that where the savings come? Because it's rolled into a box, it's easier for them to transport?
1: Absolutely, that is definitely one of the benefits of it coming in that way. Yep. But one of the most convenient or best benefits is that it's easier for you to handle in the home right. and, to, and to receive and, and to manage. So it's a, it's very convenient for it to arrive that way and convenient for you to shop as well. They have uh, some beautiful websites and uh, you know what they're really good at is they're experts at web design and internet marketing. Correct. Not necessarily manufacturing or sleep. And a lot of these online retailers, they haven't been around for very long. So their mattresses haven't been proven for the real life of the product, which should be around eight to ten years.
2: Are they allowing for returns when they're shipping them? Like, it seems crazy to me that you would allow somebody to like sleep on a mattress for a month and then take it back. But are, are they actually doing that?
1: They do. Almost all of the companies now have a, either a 60 or 90 day sleep trial, so you can return the product.
2: But you don't have to put it back in. The, you don't have to cram it back in the box, though, do you? <laughs>
1: No, that would be extremely difficult.
2: Okay, so here I am sitting in Toronto. If you're me and you're looking for a mattress, like where should I start? Should I be like listening to the commercials? Should I like should I be looking to old names? What would you recommend? Well,
1: most people begin online, yeah, and that's a great start. You know, start your buying process by understanding your choices um, and researching online. But you could spend hours online. This, yes, it's you can. a bottomless pit of information. It is. So I would say, you know, don't spend hours. Just spend some time reading online, and then call a retailer and try to speak to someone who's been in the industry for a while. Someone who can give you uh, a personalized solution that's knowledgeable and also not trying to promote a specific product to you. I would avoid certain sites, okay? Certain companies. I would avoid, uh, as we spoke about before, large marketplaces, online marketplaces. They will have limited expertise. I would avoid fancy new breeds, uh, the fancy new breed of internet retailers that have those jazzy images and marketing terms. I would avoid national chains that we may, may want to just simply promote their largest supplier. And I would avoid warehouses like Costco that simply sell on price. That's what, I, you know, those are the kind of places I would avoid.
2: Okay, so the expertise that you're referring to, what sort of issues would you expect from somebody who's employed in a store that would give you a sense of comfort? What are the trust issues as far as you're concerned?
1: They should be able to, they should ask you first and foremost, how you sleep. What are the ailments that you currently have, if any? Are you tossing and turning? Are you getting hot in bed? Do you sleep with a partner? Do you sleep on your own? And try to understand your not only your sleep habits but also where your pain points are. Right. In Montreal, there's a great retailer called Matt Labonneur. Their sleep experts have been around for a while. They understand this process. And in Ottawa, there's a great retailer called uh, MacroSmart. Mm-hmm. And of course, here in Toronto and in the area, you can always ask for ask a, or call Ultramatic for some simple advice.
2: What sort of training are you giving your staff, Adarsh?
1: Uh, We put our staff through this kind of what we call a sleep university. (laughs) It's a a deep training that we refresh periodically. And uh, we almost have like a a Bible that we we give people when they join us and as we go through their training process. It's done by people who've been in the industry for more than 10 years. Mm -hmm. The training is done by experienced professionals. And the training involves actually visiting the manufacturing Location, So they're not only learning the benefits of the product, but they're seeing how it's made, the care that goes into it. And they're speaking to people who are involved in the product development process so they can understand what are the next set of issues that that the product development staff are trying to solve.
2: Okay, we have time for one more question, and that is this. I'm sure you hear from people who come into your store after sort of having let's just say, not the best experiences online or by phone. So what are some of the things that you're hearing that people are experiencing that maybe our listeners aren't thinking about, but they should be wary of?
1: If you're buying online or over the phone, be careful for fraud. You're not seeing that person in person or you're not in the store physically. There are sites and companies that could misrepresent themselves. I often see this on Instagram or Facebook. You know, I often see the same product appear on my page under different names. So, if you haven't heard of the company, there's probably a reason why. The other thing is uh, you mentioned earlier is shipping times. Due to COVID, supply chains have been disrupted, and deliveries may take longer than normal. So that's okay. Just be pre- be prepared for it and ask about it upfront. Many internet retailers are not Canadian, so if you are buying online, try to understand where the ship where the products is shipping from. Yep. If it's coming from the U.S., there may be U.S. duties or clearing charges. The last thing I would say is ask about safety. Ask how the retailer is sanitizing the product before shipping. And if you're visiting the store before purchasing, ask how the staff are monitored for COVID, how many people are allowed in the store, if they can give you a private appointment and how are they sanitizing the surface on which you're going to be resting your head on in a lot of cases
2: fantastic advice will you come back again and talk about sleep and and bedding
1: 100 you know I, I just want to say that all of this might sound like a it's very daunting at the beginning but have patience and find someone or a company that you trust It'll be worth the wait because there's nothing like the piece of slipping into a comfortable new bed or uh, something with new sheets and a, and a plush pillow, uh, reading cozily in bed without shifting pillows and with your lumbar supported. There's nothing like waking refreshed and ready for a new day. Fantastic.
2: We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss spousal support during COVID-19 on The Tonic. Alamax Canada is the company that delivers real bioactive stabilized allicin using only the freshest garlic from Spain. Alamax is the trusted source for a high-quality and effective allicin supplement. The manufacturers of Alamax have dedicated their time to researching this fascinating plant and all of its antimicrobial and antibacterial benefits. To fight infection and stay well, take Alamax. For more information, visit alamax.ca. Fine & Associates are family lawyers who dedicate themselves to dealing with separation and divorce matters every day. They specialize in custody, access, child and spousal support, and division of family property. It's their mission to resolve all issues amicably. But, if necessary, they're prepared to go to court and fight strongly on your behalf. Fine & Associates family lawyers are committed to achieving the results that you deserve to help you move forward with your life. If you're going through a separation or divorce, call 416 650 1300 to speak to Lauren Fine for a free initial phone consultation. For more information, visit TorontoDivorcelaw.com.
3: This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio.
2: Daniel Dominitz is a lawyer at Fine & Associates. He's devoted to all aspects of family law, including divorce, custody, and access, child and spousal support, property division, separation agreements, marriage contracts, and cohabitation agreements. Daniel's practice involves both litigation and alternative dispute resolution. Welcome to the show, sir. How are you?
4: Good. How are you, Jamie? Thanks for having me on. I'm doing really well today,
2: and I've been with my wife since we started dating when she was 18 and I was 20, and I've known her since I was 14 and she was 12. So we are rock solid. But there's a lot of people out there who are struggling, particularly during COVID. And one of the issues that always comes up is spousal support. Yeah.
4: Yes, for sure. That is a big one.
2: Yeah. Why don't you sort of walk us through what is spousal support and what are some of the issues that surround it?
4: Sure. So spousal support or otherwise known as alimony in, in certain circles, mostly in the U.S. Here we refer to it as a spousal support. Spousal support is it is what it uh, seems like. It's support that's intended to compensate or to provide care for one spouse upon a breakdown of a marriage or upon a breakdown of a relationship. Now, some people don't understand or they don't realize that uh, spousal support is not only intended for married spouses. People do not have to be married in order to potentially be entitled to spousal support. The question of who is entitled, how long you need to be in a relationship for is a function of how long the relationship has been, what were the parties' respective roles during the marriage or, or the relationship, how long that was, whether there are children, and what both parties' income is. Okay,
2: so you're taking sort of a snapshot of who's earning the money, what is the actual relationship they have, how long has it lasted, all the sorts of things you would think about to sort of frame what was – because everybody's relationship is different, right?
4: Correct. So we look at what were the parties' circumstances during the marriage? Was one party the primary breadwinner, so to speak? If that's the case, then usually we do find an entitlement. So the first step in examining spouse support is, is there an entitlement? That's really right. the threshold question. And obviously, the longer the duration of the marriage or the relationship, if there are kids, that is usually a slam dunk answer in yes, there is an entitlement. Once you pass that threshold, then we look at quantum. how much is the appropriate and reasonable amount of support that it will be owing to the entitled recipient spouse.
2: Okay, so so let's stop for a second and, and think about what are some of the issues that would a court would look at to determine the quantum of spousal
4: support? Great, so it's a great question. So quantum is unlike child support. Spousal support, we look at both parties' respective incomes, or equally important, their capacity to earn specific levels of income. Now, if both parties were working during the marriage and post-separation and they're employees and they have a T4 income, we would just plug in their respective incomes into what we call the spousal support advisory guidelines. It's a, a mathematical exercise, and then the guidelines would spit back a range of support and where a specific case will fall within the rage is a function of how long uh, the parties were together for and usually how many children they have. However, in many cases, uh, when we have self-employed individuals, then their income and how that translates into, into the quantum of support is a little bit of a different exercise because then we come to situation where one party or both parties are claiming specific amounts of income on let's say their tax return but really they have the capacity to earn more or they in fact do earn more but for legitimate tax savings instructors they're they are declaring a lesser income. And in that situation, the courts have a wide discretion to actually impute what we call to impute a higher level of income to one or both parties. And of course, that will will in turn impact the quantum of support.
2: Right. Are there other factors other than earnings that would factor into this? So, for example, if there was family money, or you know, pre-existing wealth, is it all derived from income or is wealth taken into it?
4: Great question. So capital and savings of one or both parties access to that definitely impacts that quantum. The short answer is not as much, but the one other area that would impact the quantum other than income is whether the payor spouse in the given situation will also be paying child support and, uh, a separate pot of money for what we call Section 7 expenses that goes to extracurriculars, activities, post-secondary, uh, education, and other expenses for the children. So the theory is, is that the more the payor is paying, you know, in, on account of other areas, the less money they have to then pay spousal support. There's less discretionary income to pay for spousal support, and then the quantum will be less.
2: When the court is looking at all these sort of factors, is it a snapshot? Or are they looking both backwards and forwards? So what I'm thinking of, for example, is somebody who has a business, who maybe it's a startup, and then maybe in a year or so, maybe that business takes off. Or, you know, they're in a, in a pandemic, for example, and maybe their income isn't quite what it was. Will the courts look at that?
4: Yes. So for spousal support, the courts really look at the period of time, a few years before separation, what were the family circumstances, what were the dynamics, but especially now during COVID where parties' incomes have changed in a significant way versus what they earned during the marriage courts will definitely have more discretion to say look even though this was the dynamic during the marriage and both parties were earning this and this a certain amount and this is where the guidelines come however on a go-forward basis given that incomes are declining specifically during COVID 19 there is discretion to order or for the parties if they're negotiating out of court to fix a lower amount of spousal support. So I guess to answer your question, yes, it is a snapshot. Uh, It's very much an exercise where we look at uh, the historical dynamic when it came to the party's finances. But more and more, the courts are also looking prospectively Is this an amount of support that is reasonable, given changing dynamics and circumstances? And, you know, and when it comes to COVID-19, I'll be honest with you, it's still too early to determine where the case law and the courts will go with this. It's such a new area. And we're now in my practice, we're seeing it more and more where old clients are coming to us and say, look, I've been ordered to pay this amount of support or I've agreed to pay this amount of support. It's simply not sustainable. The challenge is with that situation is that there's not enough precedent. There's not enough direction yet from the courts how they will treat the change in circumstances. So it's really kind of a moving exercise, so to speak.
2: Well, family law has always been that, right? I mean, it's the most volatile of all the litigation litigation practices because, you know, there's so much bad law out there because most of the cases that make it to trial are the, the ultra wealthy. They're the only ones who can afford to litigate. So you get some very strange results. Are the courts, are they treating COVID as a temporary situation? Like, are they giving interim orders or are they look are they waiting to see the bigger picture, whether it lasts longer in terms of how it impacts
4: income and businesses? So I would say that they're looking, they're waiting to see. The courts in general, they're old school, they're not, they don't like to be so proactive and, and, and uh, make rash orders or decisive orders before uh, the writing is set in stone. The challenge with COVID-19, to be honest with you, is that for the first five or six months, the courts were essentially closed. The right. only matters that were able to be brought before the court were truly urgent matters relating to custody and access, and support matters were Really pushed to this side. Now that the courts are open, uh, be in a little in, in a somewhat limited matter. The support cases are still behind the line, right? So it, it, they're still not there's a backlog in the system for cases to come through. So for the most part, courts are haven't really decisively address this issue. But of course, I anticipate that they will eventually probably within that we will see more and more cases within the next few months.
2: Have the courts issued any notices about how they're going to deal with the backlog? Like, are you guys in the dark? You're just sort of waiting to hear that they have the capacity to take on the less urgent matters?
4: Well, we haven't. We haven't heard. I mean, the system and the process has been Dramatically altered. I mean, we're doing most hearings remotely and that obviously is not as, uh, although you would think that it would be more conducive in terms of efficiency that actually has further backlogged the system. But look, the courts are doing the best job that they can. They haven't specifically addressed The less urgent cases that were punted back in the summer, such as support cases, they haven't sent out any directions as to how they're going to deal with it. But they are starting to deal with it more and more. I have a bunch of cases, for example, that this issue will be adjudicated in the next month or so.
2: Okay, so there's no precedence yet with how they're treating COVID. So how are you able to negotiate with opposing counsel if there's no precedent and reduced ability to get into court? Because those outside the law may not know but the vast majority of issues are negotiated out right like most Correct. Of, most of the stuff does not get to trial so so how is that impacting your ability to negotiate for your clients
4: well I can tell you that we've been doing a lot of mediation like you said most cases don't even the matters that are in court don't go to the final step to a trial and there there ha- a lot of I have a lot of matters where there's ongoing dialogue between counsel as to how are we going to deal with material change in circumstances and a party's income when it comes to support every case is different different, right? So you can't just argue material change. You have to demonstrate it. And in some, depending on the person's job or their self-employment income, it's still too early to concretely demonstrate that, yes, the payer's income is drastically reduced. And that's what's going to happen in the foreseeable future.
2: My recollection was, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but there's a higher proportion of self-represented litigants in the family arena. Are you finding that's an added challenge during COVID, that people are representing themselves in in their divorce proceedings?
4: Yes, that's always been a challenge. It's, it's always difficult when, you know, for example, my, I have a client and the other side is self-represented. It's always challenging. I think during COVID-19 and because the court process has changed so much, there are less and less self-represented litigants just because as it is, there's a challenge in getting acclimated with the court process, and now with all the differences with the Zoom hearings and the different forms that you have to file, I think that that's a hurdle for self-represented litigants.
2: Okay, so we have time for one last question, and that is, you know, given everything that we've just discussed, what would be your best advice to anybody who's who's trying to deal with spousal support through the courts at
4: this point? Well, the best advice that I could give is stay ahead of it. Don't wait to see what can happen. The earlier you pursue your, your change, whether you're the recipient or the payor, if you feel that there's a material change in circumstances and the current level of support is just not sustainable, again, for either side, the best way is to stay ahead of it, raise the issue with other side, with opposing counsel. And more importantly, you need to demonstrate the change. Just to say there's a change and that's it, that's not going to fly. Gather your disclosure, gather any documents that you need that substantiate the change that you're seeking. Stay ahead of it, and the quicker you do that, the easier the process will be for you.
2: Fantastic. That's great advice. Thank you so much for coming on the show today.
4: Thanks, Jamie. I appreciate it.
2: We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss the natural treatment of constipation and IBS on The Tonic. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. I'd like to give a shout-out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian-owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000-square-foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. You're listening to The Tonic on Sumer Radio. Dr. Emily Lipinski graduated from the Canadian College of Naturopathic Medicine in Toronto and is a member of the Ontario Association of Naturopathic Doctors. While in the academic world, Emily became fascinated with the potential applications of naturopathic medicine in health and wellness. She strongly believes in addressing the root causes of medical issues and using natural therapies either alone or in conjunction with conventional Western medicine. Welcome back to the show. How are you?
3: I'm great. How are you doing?
2: I'm doing very well. Today, we've got a topic that isn't necessarily sexy. It's not sexy at all. But, you know, a lot of people are affected by it or maybe think they might be affected by it. So let's talk about irritable bowel syndrome, okay?
3: Yes, it is more common. It's estimated that about 15% of the global population is now experiencing irritable bowel syndrome or also known, you know, as IBS.
2: Okay, what is it? You know, just because you have an upset stomach or your poop isn't right doesn't mean you have it, right?
3: That's right. IBS is really a gastrointestinal disorder that is functional, so that means that there's actually no true tissue damage or biological markers or blood markers that we can necessarily find to say, okay, you've got IBS. But when people are having chronic abdominal pain and bloating, often varying bouts of diarrhea or constipation, and everything else has been ruled out they don't have, you know, colon cancer. There's no inflammatory bowel disease like Crohn's or colitis. Generally, their categorized is, okay, you know, we can't find anything else wrong. You have IBS.
2: Is it become a catch-all? Yes,
3: yeah, some people say. And, and that's kind of what we're kind of gonna, going to talk about today is because it's become so predominant, And because for a long time, a lot of patients have suffered for IBS, that there's no real, there is few pharmacological interventions, but they don't seem to be as effective as maybe we hope they would be for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And for a long time, people would say, "There's not really, you know, I don't have this, I don't have that, I don't have this." So it's just had been termed a catch-all IBS, but yet I still have symptoms, I'm still suffering, and, you know, we need to get at the root cause of the problem. What what actually is going on?
2: Okay. I didn't mean it sort of in a critical way. It's just sometimes there's some ailments which have sort of a a collective series of symptoms. And for lack of a better phrase, oh, you know, it, it sort of gets thrown into a basket. But that doesn't mean people aren't suffering. That's
3: right. Yes.
2: What are the causes and risk factors for IBS? So
3: the risk factors, there is a genetic predisposition. But then we also know that stress, anxiety, depression is those people that are suffering those things are more likely to develop IBS. Same with people that have food sensitivities. Mm -hmm. And another new kind of finding is people that have an overgrowth of small intestinal bacteria, also known as SIBO. And I know last month we spoke about bacteria in the gut that could trigger autoimmune disease. Well, we're seeing bacteria in the small intestine part of the gut that could be triggering symptoms of IBS as well. And then certain medications can also, especially long-term use of certain medications like proton pump inhibitors, which are really commonly prescribed for acid reflux, those can also increase the risk of IBS.
2: Okay. I know when people go to see an ND and they have stomach ailments and stomach problems and bloating and the sort of things that might be associated with IBS, a lot of NDs will say, okay, it may be connected to what you're eating. And I gather that's, you know, with IBS, that is part of it. Yeah. That's
0: right. Yeah.
3: And now, even in the conventional community, a lot of, you know, again, previously it was thought, well, IBS isn't related to what you're eating. But we now know that there's quite a bit of good evidence specifically for a type of diet you may have heard of called the FODMAPS diet yep. become quite popular. And that is actually being used or, and, you know, I say prescribed because you could prescribe a diet in the conventional community amongst MDs and gastroenterologists for IBS. And the FODMAPS diet is a restriction of certain types of carbohydrates that have been seen to be more problematic to the gut or harder to digest.
2: Okay, which is what I thought. I thought a lot of it is driven by like wheat and gluten and, and even sometimes dairy. Yeah?
3: Dairy is a big one. Dairy is one of the ones. And so that's one in terms of food sensitivities. Yeah. You see, there's actually quite a bit of evidence that people with IBS, they actually might not be lactose intolerant. Yep. But they may have a sensitivity to dairy or some other protein in the dairy like casein, which isn't tested for, that's causing the symptoms that they're experiencing with IBS.
2: And that may develop as you age, right? It's possible that you are perfectly capable of, of digesting you know, milk and cheese as you were younger, but it becomes more difficult as you get older, right?
3: Absolutely. Especially if you have some of these other risk factors like we right. talk about. Like We know there's a very strong correlation with anxiety and stress and IBS. So if you're, you know, someone that's experiencing that or in a very high-stress job and then maybe you're also taking this proton pump inhibitor because you've developed heartburn, and then, you know, you're eating lots of dairy because you love it. And all of a sudden, you can't tolerate the dairy anymore. That doesn't mean maybe you won't ever be able to again. Perhaps if you quit your job and started to meditate, maybe you could handle dairy again. But, it's you know, these things can compound on
2: itself. So let's focus a little bit of, on stress and anxiety. Is it, is it really, I mean, you know, everybody's under stress now because of COVID, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Like, so is it that much of a trigger for IBS?
3: It seems. To be because we have some evidence that there's a communication between the brain and the gut yes. that can lead to hypersensitivity or motility disturbances. And again, you know, with stress, what's so interesting about stress is stress is real or perceived. So whether someone's, you know, literally running from a bear in the woods or they're at work and they think their boss is upset with them, maybe their boss isn't upset with them at all, but they're going through those motions and the circular, you know, rumination. In their head that my boss is upset, I'm not doing a good enough job. It's the same reaction in the brain, which obviously can trigger changes in the gut and affect. You know, a lot of people have said, oh, I have nervous gut if I have to present or if I'm nervous, I have diarrhea. So a lot of people can understand that connection between the brain and, and the gut. So again, but it depends on how people are managing their stress. Maybe some people have a very stressful lifestyle, but they're doing things like yoga, meditation, doing lots of walks, and they're managing it really well. That may not affect the
2: gut. Got it. Let's refocus on diet now. So we don't want people self-diagnosing, but are there foods that they should or should not be eating that might help with IBS?
3: So generally speaking, I say, you know, if you're if you're having bouts of diarrhea or constipation, if you've been diagnosed or you think you may have it, I generally say, do a trial of dairy-free. That's usually what I start with because it is, you know, for so many people seems to be a common trigger. Yep. And a trial really means absolutely no dairy for at least three to four weeks. So even two tablespoons of, of dairy in a coffee can be triggering. So it's something that someone really has to commit to, and they have to do it for a long enough time because of how the body reacts to things. The body can still mount a reaction up to three weeks after the consumption. So you really have to commit to like full month, no dairy and see what happens. And then a reintroduction is really good too. So maybe you think you're better. Maybe you think you're only a little bit better. It's been a month. You want to actually have a good amount of dairy after you've completed this month's trial. Mm. So that would be, you know, a big glass of milk or maybe, you know, two servings of yogurt and see what happens over the next few days. A lot of people think they're only moderately better when they've taken out dairy, but then they have two glasses of milk and they're in the bathroom for two hours, so then they know, yeah, okay, obviously milk's causing the diarrhea
2: and then it's easy enough to avoid the milk, right you know
3: milk or yes, absolutely there's so many dairy free alternatives on the market now then if milk wasn't so much the problem mm-hmm. the FODMAS diet is also really like easy to do. There's a lot of different information like a lot of information online about it, especially from Stanford University, has done a lot of research into this. And it's really about it's a little bit more nuanced, but there's certain vegetables, fruits, types of grains that you can have and some that you can't. Again, it's all based on these types of carbohydrates that each individual food has. Mm-hmm. So, for example, garlic, you can't have. Same with onions, you can't have. But there's lots of other vegetables that you can have. So, again, with the FODMAPS diet, that needs to be done for at least that three to four a week period. And then depending on how you feel, some people feel so good they don't need to reintroduce food. Some people aren't sure. They can slowly try and reintroduce and see what works and see what doesn't.
2: Okay. Now let's move beyond diet now. There are other things, other natural remedies that might help?
3: Absolutely. So we know that certain types of probiotics can be very beneficial to treating IBS, replenishing the gut with a good type of bacteria that helps to, you know, mitigate even some of those effects from the stress response. Depending on what type of IBS you have, some people have mixed. So it's a mix of diarrhea or constipation. Some people it's chronic constipation in some people's chronic diarrhea. Some natural laxatives or conventional laxatives can be helpful. Same with, obviously, if there's diarrhea, some natural bulking agents, like increasing certain fibers in the diet can also be helpful. Then we know that there's also certain supplements that can be really beneficial. One of the ones that I find to be really helpful is peppermint oil, or peppermint tea, and we have quite a few studies that show that it actually really helps to calm the gut down and improve symptoms of IBS. And then I would say the other one that I use more commonly is melatonin. Mm. And melatonin is actually thought to be helpful for sleep, but it actually has quite a good benefit on gastrointestinal disorders. So patients still take it at bedtime, generally start at a very small dose. But whether it's because it's helping improve quality and quantity of sleep, it seems to help to reduce abdominal pain and sensitivity in patients with IBS and bloating.
2: Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Will you come again soon? I will. We have to take a short break, but we'll be right back on The Tonic. Gentlemen, are prostate problems spoiling your day or waking you up at night? Ladies, are you tired of these disruptions? Discover Prostate Perform. Formulated with clinically proven natural ingredients, Prostate Perform helps reduce the frequency and urgency of men's bathroom breaks. Why wait? Prostate Perform relieves symptoms of BPH in men, so you can both get back to enjoying your favorite activities. Available exclusively at quality health food stores. To learn more, visit newrootsherbal.com. And to ensure these products are right for you, always read and follow the label. The Tonic is brought to you by Purely Natural. Enjoy the detox. Enjoy the great taste. Purely natural, liquid greens.
3: This is The Tonic on Zoomer
4: Radio.
2: Carolyn Tanner-Cohen is the owner and founder of Delicious Dish Cooking School in Toronto. She's been teaching cooking classes for 17 years. She has a science background which edifies her interest in health and fueling the body with foods that will optimize health. Carolyn teaches people how to meal plan, eat healthy, cook with natural whole foods, and organize their kitchen. She teaches new cooks, seasoned cooks, university students who are living on their own for the first time, nannies, housekeepers, and everyone in between. For more information about Carolyn, you can visit deliciousdish.ca. Welcome back to the show. How are you?
0: Thank you, Jamie. I'm great. Thanks so much. How
2: are you? I'm doing well. Last month, we discussed sort of the basic cooking techniques for people who have their heroes, which are either proteins or the main ingredient of the dish. And the focus was on the technique as opposed to the flavoring. This show, we're going to go the entirely different direction and talk about how to bring flavors out and what herbs and spices people might consider using. Great. But as always, we got to start at the beginning. And the key seasoning agents are, of course, salt and pepper,
0: right? For sure. And that's why those two should be sitting on your counter all the time. We talk about salt all the time. It seems to creep into every conversation. Yeah. But it's best to keep your salt in a cellar. So you could put your fingers in it. And in the cellar, you should have a little old half-teaspoon measure in case you do need to measure. You don't have to start fumbling for your measuring spoons. So I'm not going to get too deep into salt at all, but I just would like to say that salt is a flavor enhancer, it turns up the volume on any flavors that you're already using in your food, while pepper is a great sidekick and because it adds pungency to any dish, which helps round out the other flavors. So think of pepper as adding punctuation while salt adds the volume. Hmm, that's okay? interesting. I know. And
2: I would add to that, okay, some people who don't cook, We'll have some granulated iodized salt and maybe pepper from like a shaker. Yeah. And, you know, I get it. I'm cringing. It, it, it'll work. But really, you need uniodized kosher salt or sea salt. And yeah. you need peppercorns that are ground in the minute. Otherwise, you're not doing a service to your food. But that's all I want to say on it. I want to move I on. I agree.
0: So we talked earlier, you and I, about the must-haves and what's on the must-have list. Yeah, So I don't want to you know, tell you the must-haves that you have to have on your list. It really depends on what types of foods you like to eat most and what you like to cook with the most. I'm going to give you mine.
2: Okay, but before you get there, let's talk a little bit about purchasing herbs and spices. And if you have dried herbs and spices, the best way to hold on to them. And then we'll get into our favorites, okay?
0: Okay, I love that. So how long should spices last, first of all? Yeah. So six months, I'd say. But the reality is... We all have them for way longer, and I have them for way longer, Mm -hmm. okay? So just make sure they're in a very, very well-sealed jar or container. I personally like a small mason jar, like the 125-mil mason jars, and I label them on the top and on the side. Sticker or label maker, so that you could stack them and still see the label, and you could see the tops of them if they're sitting low in a drawer.
2: The reason I like that with a wide opening, if you have to do measures, it's easier to stick the spoon yeah. in because I find when you buy it like prepackaged in those little like tubular containers, it's impossible to get like a teaspoon or a yeah. half tablespoon or whatever it is you need. Right. It's a nightmare.
0: And it's not likely that you're shaking, you know, cardamom pods.
4: No, exactly. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. So you
0: need to measure. Yeah. So small 125 ml and jars with the wide mouth. Okay. That's number one. That's for maximum shelf life. Now kitchen cabinets are a great place, except that you gotta make sure they're not next to a stove or an oven because they should be stored in a cool, dark place. Right. That's all I really need to say about those kind of things. Now if you had them for like a year and a year and a half, it's time to go through clean out. It's a good time right now. Most of us are home more Let's just do it. And you don't need as many as you think. You don't need the variety that you think.
2: Yeah, I suppose it depends on how much cooking you're doing. But, you know, people really have their comfort levels, you know, with certain spices. They like, you know, it resonates with them. And I would say if you have those spices, you're probably going through them enough that you don't have to throw out the spices that you're using. But you know, right. like if you if you're purchasing an herb or a spice for a particular recipe and then you're you know, you're leaving it sit in your cupboard, you're not doing yourself any favors. You know, like you, sure. you might as well go get the new one if if, if you feel like you, you need more of it.
0: For something like nutmeg, which we very rarely use, but when we need it, we need it. Yep. And there's not much you can replace with. If you buy nutmeg in whole form, yeah. like it looks like a little nut, yeah. you could grate the nutmeg on a microplane grater like That's a, what a I dester. Do. Yeah. yeah. So whenever you need nutmeg, you really only need a pinch, at most, a quarter teaspoon. So to buy a whole thing of nutmeg, you're never going to go through it all. But if you buy a a whole nutmeg, you don't have to use it within six months. You can use it within two years. Right. So that's something you should always be buying whole. If you don't want to grind your spices, then just buy ground spices in smaller amounts. And that's why I really recommend buying spices in bulk, but in very, very small bulk. Right.
2: And there's a few stores around the city that have enough turnover that you don't have to worry about buying in bulk. And even during COVID, John Vince is a great example where I buy my herbs and spices. You can literally find absolutely every spice and condiment you could possibly imagine in in bulk and you can buy the quantities you want. And it is guaranteed fresh because on the wholesale side, they are making herbs and spices for pretty much every brand that you know of in Canada.
0: And you could actually bring your little containers if you want.
2: That I didn't know.
0: Yes, you can. You you might not be able to do it during COVID. I'm not sure, but they'll weigh them for you before and then you could bring your containers. You just go right there. Perfect. We talked about spice, my spice essential. Go for it. Okay. So first of all, I have all different kinds of peppercorns, and I have a few very cheap plastic grinders. So I buy the peppercorns whole, and I keep a few grinders of different peppercorns. They all are harvested at different times. They're mostly the same berry, but harvested at different times. So they have different notes and different flavors and different heats. Mm -hmm. So they're great to just explore, and you just try them. Okay, bay leaves to me are a must. I buy them fresh in the Mm clamshells, and I freeze them. So you freeze them in a little Ziploc bag and you keep them in your freezer. So I don't even consider that to take up very much real estate in my spice
2: pantry. Yeah, and and the one thing about bay leaves is you can't eat them. You have to pull them out.
0: Yes, and they're even more flexible when you buy them fresh so they don't break. Okay. So that's great. Cinnamon Mm -hmm. has a lot of antimicrobial properties, which is really great, and health-promoting effects, but it's delicious for sweetening things even though it doesn't have sugar in it, obviously, mm-hmm. but also great, really great for savory dishes to mix with certain things. That This this is for me, of course.
2: And, you know, the cuisines that you're looking at, if you're looking at Middle Eastern Moroccan foods, they'll, they'll cook a lot of savory applications with sugar. Yeah,
0: and you know me, I cook a lot of that kind of food. Yep. So that's why my list will lend towards that. So granulated garlic, that's yep. a big one for me. Not garlic powder, that looks like baby powder. I actually really like the granulated garlic. It looks like fine sand. Mm-hmm. To okay, me, it tastes better. Cumin, ground cumin and whole cumin.
2: I prefer whole cumin, even though the seeds, they look like little mini caraway seeds. I prefer sort of, I'll do like a dry saute of the cumin seed first and I just yeah. prefer it to the powder. I don't know why. And
0: then do you grind it?
2: No, I leave them whole.
0: Even in really? Yeah. In so chi- what's your what's the turkey, your in, in, in,
2: in turkey chili I will use whole cumin seed.
0: Okay, so if a regular recipe says a teaspoon of ground cumin, what do you do?
2: See, that's an unfair question. I don't cook with recipes uh, so I kind of make <laughs> it up as I go but whole cumin seed is now my go-to. I much prefer it to the powder. I think it's more okay. subtle and, and more nuttier
0: actually. It is definitely more subtle. Now, I do cook with recipes but, you know, you Started off this whole intro by saying I have a science background, so I like to cook with recipes and mostly, of course, my own, but I do like to cook with recipes. Yep. Paprika, yep. of all sorts. So I like to have smoked paprika in the house, and I keep that in this original little tin. And I like to have regular sweet paprika too. Turmeric, yep. love turmeric. It's very, very good for you. And I make a very simple chicken with just turmeric, dried oregano, garlic, olive oil, lemon. It's a perfect Greek marinade. Delicious. Mm-hmm. Okay. My favorite these days is za'atar.
2: When you say za'atar, do you mean the actual herb za'atar or the herb blend za'atar?
0: I mean the herb blend. So if you go somewhere in the Middle East and you say za'atar, all you're talking about is thyme. And I mean thyme, T-H-Y-M-E. Okay. That is what za'atar means, but it is also synonymous with the mix, which is has thyme, sometimes oregano, sometimes, very rarely, sumac, sesame seeds, and sometimes salt. Yes. Okay? So the za'atar that I like to buy really just has sesame seeds and thyme, and I love sprinkling it. If I don't know what to eat for dinner, I'll defrost chicken scallopini, sprinkle it with za'atar, a little bit of granulated garlic or fresh garlic, and grill it, olive oil, and then squeeze of lemon at the end. Okay. That's my go-to. What else? Okay. Sumac. So that's lemony and fruity and earthy. And I love mixing that with za'atar and anything else I'm cooking. Mm-hmm. Baharat, which is another one of those, which really just means spice mixture, but it's a Middle Eastern spice mixture. Mm-hmm. Dried oregano. Chili powder is a big thing for me too. And all different varieties. I only like and the ancho
2: chili powder. That's the only one I use. I don't like easily. the... If I'm making something like Mexican, I will combine my own spices. I don't like the chili blends. What about... Chipotle chili powder. I use chipotle sauce or I'll okay. get a whole chipotle, not dried.
0: Okay. That's interesting because I like the dried and the sauce, but I do like the dried sometimes. This is the last two that I really want to talk about. Sure. Flaked onion and flaked garlic. So not ground, flake, like large chunks of flake, something you'd see in the everything with the bagel. And I think it's great, especially when you don't want to chop an onion or, chop or mince a garlic. It's a great seasoner. It could be a great as a spice mix on a piece of grilled food. And the next time you don't know what to eat for dinner, Jamie, just look inside your spice pantry and just get inspired. Try sweet potatoes, slathered with oil, seasoned with some coriander, smoked paprika and cumin, salt of course.
2: Give me two more quick recipes.
0: How about fennel seeds? Yeah. Mixed with kosher salt, crushed red pepper flakes as a rub for chicken and spice. Fennel seeds really go under-noticed, under-noticed is that word, and they're really great. Or mustard seeds, pan sear a steak or salmon filet on a cast iron or a pan, set it aside on a plate, add some diced onion or shallots and olive oil to your pan, little bit of red wine vinegar and mustard seed, mustard seed, mustard seed. You have made the most delicious red wine mustard sauce.
2: Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Will you come back next
0: month? Absolutely.
2: Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Adar Shah, Daniel Dominitz, Dr. Emily Lipinski-ND, and Carolyn Tanner-Cohen. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can follow us at The Tonic Talk Show on Instagram or Facebook. For great articles written by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of Tonic Magazine. The November-December issue is now available free on racks at over a. 150 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in 11 choice neighbourhoods in Toronto. Or you can visit our website at tonictoronto.com. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can email me at jamie at tonictoronto.com. Next week on the show, we'll discuss which protein is right for you, the holiday cookbook gift guide, and COVID-19 and the impact on the brain. Until then, this is Jamie Bussin wishing you a healthy and happy week.